0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting new books, and this week I'm very happy to say we have Wolfgang G. Schwanitz on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, co-authored with the late Barry Rubin, Nazis, Islamists, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. As I told Wolfgang, in the pre-interview, this book was something of a revelation to me. I'm not a student of Middle Eastern history, but I am a student of European history, and I did not know the extent to which uh, this, well, we'll be talking about several individuals, but I did not know the extent to which the Germans were involved in Middle Eastern affairs, uh, uh, basically between or beginning with World War I, and then, well, it's ongoing through World War II. So I learned quite a bit from this book, and I imagine you will, too. The book is somewhat controversial, I imagine. Uh, I know I've read a little bit on the web about uh, some of the issues that it addresses, and it is uh, something that, as I say, of an ongoing, I don't know if debate is the right word, but people are, are very interested in the topic. So first, let me say, Wolfgang, thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome. All right. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, um, I was born in 1955 in East Germany, and my parents worked as diplomats in the Middle East. So they took me and my two brothers to the Middle East, to Egypt, to Cairo, where we spent five years. And later then, in 1965, we returned to Cairo in the same position. And I was uh, a boy of, say, 10 years, as the War of June 1967 occurred. I was just in my school on the outskirts of Cairo, and all of a sudden we were rushed into buses and so on, and we saw Israeli jets over Cairo, and this war made a big impression on me. Since ever, I wanted to to know more on the Middle East, and... um, So I went to study the subject for five years at Leipzig University, a great institution with a long tradition. And um, so I became an Arabist and economist after studying uh, the Middle East. And um, since ever, I worked in research on the Middle East.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, could you tell us why you wrote this particular book, Nazis, Islamists, Islamists and the Making of the Modern uh, Middle East, with um, Barry Rubin.
1: Yes, I discovered uh, early on there is um, a lack in our knowledge on the relations between Middle Eastern countries and Germany. And um, so I uh, concentrated or focused on this topic since three decades, and um, after the German unification, it was possible also to access other archives. Uh, since Germany was divided, the archives were divided as well. So, um, but with the unification, we were able to get a more complete picture. And I continued this research in the United States. And in the United States was a similar process. Of releasing records of um, World War Two and thereafter, and uh, so I looked at the same topics and issues from other sides, from more neutral sides, say like the United States, and um, that's why we wrote this book. We met, met in 2007 at the Middle East Forum of Philadelphia, and we agreed to. Write jointly this book, this book, because we were both of the opinion that it's really necessary to find out what really happened in World War One, in World War Two, in the Cold War, and in the Global Era. Mm-hmm. And you perhaps know that uh, historians usually work just on one era, let's say World War One or World War Two or Cold War, and so on. We agreed, Barry and I, that it's necessary to overcome this uh, work on just the narrow field and offer a broader vision on what might have or has happened mm-hmm. in this process mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. well i mean if i could summarize uh, that one of the themes or threads of the book I mean, essentially it's a a genealogy of a, a really almost a, a single idea and a prejudice and that single idea is an uh, islamic or arab Jihad against the Western powers and uh, really uh, an attempt to uh, remove the Jews from the Middle East. Those are two threads that um, run throughout the book. All the right. yes, yes. So uh, I was going to say, let's begin talking about uh, the origins of this idea—that is, a, a an attempt to uh, expel the uh, um, Western imperialists, if we can call them, not the British and the French. Um, and then this anti-Semitism. I think that it wouldn't do injustice to your book to say that it begins with a fellow named Max von Oppenheim.
1: Right. Um, You know, uh, Western powers discovered the world, and so they conquered different areas, including in the Middle East, especially France and uh, the British Empire and so on. And the Germans were somehow latecomers to the scene, to the world theater. So um, they didn't build empires, and they had no colonies in the Middle East. After 1871, there was a united Germany, and they uh, were very successful to advance and to have uh, economic and cultural extension to the Middle East. And uh, one key figure was Max von Oppenheim. He was of Jewish descent, but actually he was a Christian. He was born into a Jewish family. And uh, he was a traveler to the Middle East. And in 1893 and 1894, he made his big journey from the Mediterranean to the Gulf. It's the title of his book and uh, he discovered people and countries and so on. There he watched a stiff resistance to Western values, ideas, concepts, and um, remember there was a Mahdi movement in Sudan, and the Mahdi was able to regain the Sudan, and they had for a dozen of years um, an Islamic country as empty of foreigners. So this was a model, and uh, Max von Oppenheim got the idea when the Germans don't possess colonies in the Middle East, they could use these resistant movements against the other empire builders, so to step them in, the colon- in their colonial back. And this was a basic idea, and he discovered a lot of, as he called them, anti-Christian brotherhoods the Mahdiya, the Sanusiya, the Irhwaniya, and so on. And they said, well, they don't have parties, they don't have parliaments, but they have these brotherhoods, and we can use the brotherhoods as platforms to jihadize Islam. We need to, prep- to prepare them accordingly. And this was the basic idea, and the Kaiser used this idea in 1896. He sent a message to Tsar Nicholas. And he said the following, Berlin's empire-building neighbors will squash Germany that has no colonies in the Middle East. And he continues to the Tsar, from there they get materials, markets, and soldiers to use them against her. A friend of his met a Muslim prophet in Baghdad, the friend was Max von Oppenheim, of the Al Qadiriya Brotherhood, so mighty in India that a signal by Wilhelm would spark a revolt. Losing the colony, by an Islamist revolt, so reduces Britain to a third rank power, and this way the genie got out of the bottle. Mm-hmm. This was Wilhelm's message to the to the Tsar, and since ever they worked and expanded this idea, and they met uh, Islamists, and there was already a, a broad Islamist movement in the Middle East. Let's say since 1856, okay. and so they. And there was a feeling eventually there will be an all-out war in Europe. And we as Germans can use those Islamists to incite revolts in the back. So the powers need more troops to, to keep them down and the troops can't work or fight against the Germans in Europe this was the basic idea.
0: Mhm. Well, that war came in 1914 and what uh, what role did the or what did the Germans attempt to do to foment this uh, jihad against the uh, western powers?
1: First of all, they had they had Max von Oppenheim developed a plan how to do it. He wrote on 136 pages <laughs> how to use the Muslim Brotherhood. And um before this, he described to the Kaiser how you can use Islamism, and he said, you are going to travel to uh, to Istanbul, Damascus, and Jerusalem in 1898, so befriend the Sultan Caliph. We have to do it with him, befriend the Ottomans, and then we turn jointly against the, West, the traditional Western powers in the Middle East. So he he worked it out in detail, how to do this, how to do that, and to develop an Afro-Asian jihad. And this was unique. First, they had to, to change the doctrine of jihad, because usually it's not allowed to fight with infidels against infidels, but this is exactly what they did. They changed the doctrine of jihad, that it was possible to wage jihad in a coalition war, Against other infidels on the side of Christians, theoretically also infidels. So, this was the step number one, and the step number two was actually to call for jihad at the beginning of, right at the beginning of World War, World War I, and to establish a news organization, as they called it, with 75 reading halls. They said, reading halls. In centres of cities, easily accessible, with propaganda, jihad propaganda, and how the world how World War One went on, and so on. So, and they used all means, publications, drawings, maps, and displayed them in those uh, reading halls. And we have, we found documents. One visitor was Gustav Stresemann in Istanbul. He visited. Two of those reading halls and uh, Stresemann concluded well that's really good the Turks like it, the Ottomans like it, and it's not obvious that is a, behind those reading halls is a German organization.
0: Mm-hmm. So these plans don't go particularly well during World War I. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what happened?
1: Well, um, in 1915, they got a lot of jihad fatwas from Iran uh, to the Middle East and uh, to Turkey. And um, the military part or the military side went not so well for uh, the Allied forces, that is uh, the Ottomans and the Germans. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh,
1: An idea was born how to use Islam and to develop it into a political doctrine, into an ideology. And uh, this part of the joint effort survived World War One. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just that uh, the war was not so successful that everyone stopped in this dealing. It went on mm-hmm. in the 1920s, in the 1930s. Yes,
0: Yeah, but what yes. I meant was, is that the uh, the uh, jihad that Oppenheim and the Germans were hoping to foment in the Middle East did not in fact take place, or if it did take place, it was unsuccessful. They did not remove the well, British and the French
1: yes, it was in in a way um, unsuccessful that the revolts the planned or hoped for revolts didn't occur during the war, but they occurred after the war mm-hmm. after the war the the middle East. Was quite in a sh- shaky situation, and there were revolts in Iraq and in Iran and Algeria little revolts, but they happened, and it was a, uh, a long, it had a long lasting effect mm-hmm. uh, until the late 1920s. Mm-hmm. So, an idea was born, and the idea to jihadize Islam went on, mm-hmm. it was so- taken over by locals. They took over what they thought would fit them in mm-hmm. uh, their effort to get rid of the Western powers in the Middle East and their value system.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, before we talk about that continuity and we introduce who really uh, the person who is really the sort of main character in the book, and that is Amin al-Husseini, um, uh, the other thread that goes throughout... Uh, Uh, Nazis, Islamists, Islamists, and the making of the modern Middle East is is anti-Semitism. At what point, that is prior to, let's say, 1922 or 21, um, was this Islamism and jihadization bound up with anti-Semitism?
1: You know uh, the term antisemitism is not such a luck- lucky one because it implies that there are tribes of Semites. <laughs> but there are not there there weren't tribes of Semites per yeah. se. At least not in modern times. These are um, biblical terms. So um, there was quite a tradition of Jew hatred established way before, and it was connected to the advent of Islam. And some problems uh, within the com- first communities, and uh, hostilities between the first communities of Islam and the Jewish tribes available on the Arabian Peninsula. So this was, a, a, as I call it, a tribal tradition. And then in in the age of in the modern age of nationalism and nation building, it developed, and uh, it was taken over by Hitler and uh, his uh, fellows. And um, on the other hand, in the Middle East, after 1918, many of former Arab Ottoman officers grew to leaders in Arab lands. They used uh, weapon the newly discovered weapon Islamism as well. And they themselves asked Hitler, Hitler's Berlin for joint actions against mm-hmm. the old foes. Mm-hmm. And um, or against the minorities. Remember, during World War One, both Hitler as a young soldier and Amin al-Husseini as a young Ottoman officer, they watched what went on with the Armenians, mm-hmm. the Armenian genocide. And then there was an attempted genocide against the Jews of Palestine. Mm-hmm. And one of those officers became the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, al-Husseini, in 1921.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's actually turn to him. Can you tell us about I Amin mean, al-Husseini? Where does he come from and, and so on?
1: Yes, he was born into um, a very old and famous uh, family. They moved to the area around Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself in, since the 1500s. At, this is at least what he claimed in his uh, autobiography. And um, then he became the Grand Mufti and uh, acquired some key positions in 1921. And uh, he was uh, primarily a Jew hater right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. He didn't like them. He, one uh, of the documents described him. It was his goal of his life to get rid of Jews in um, Arabian countries mm-hmm. in Arab Arab countries. Mm-hmm. So um, he acquired the old uh, tradition, and he developed it f- uh, further into a political doctrine. And uh, since he was also the head of the uh, Muslim World Congress, he, in the, late night, in the early 1930s, used this concept. Uh, the Al-Aqsa mosque is in danger because of the Jews. They like to rebuild their temple there and so on. This was uh, one of his slogans, to universalize this approach and to put the Jews into the center and, and to develop Jew hatred and as a common denominator.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, before we go on with that theme and we find out how um, Amin al-Husseini um, becomes uh, really an ally of Hitler's, t- tell us two things. One is um, the caliphate. Uh, We know that it um, disappears or is abandoned uh, by the Turks after the war. And then the position of Grand Mufti. So, first of all, what is the Caliphate and what does its disappearance signify? And the second question is, what is the Grand Mufti exactly? Uh,
1: The Caliphate, uh, as we know it in that time, uh, survived about 500 years under the Ottomans. And it was the most important unifier of all uh, Muslims in different countries. But as the Turks, especially under Kemal Ataturk, wanted to develop a nation state, they abolished first the Sultanate in 1922 and two years later, 1924, the Caliphate. So for the first time in history, there was no more overarching umbrella to unite all Muslims Mm -hmm. and therefore was also the islamism very important to remember all of them that there is a common cause to be used in different countries and overarching not uh, to go with the trend of nation-states So the islamism was an overarching concept not to have a nation state, but to stay together um, as a common ummah, as a common uh, um, unity. So um, the caliphate was abolished and uh, there was nobody anymore to call for jihad uh, for all of them. There are a lot of discussions uh, how important it was and some argue that uh, it was not a real caliph, sultan, caliph, the Ottoman one, because he only an Arab can be in such a position. But he was fairly um, recognized as the uh, most important Muslim leader. Mm-hmm. Then after this, there was a, a lack, a lacuna, you know, uh, that. Nothing is there anymore to build a Muslim block or an Islamic block in the world, so they had to turn to different countries to set up um, accesses and so on and this is what happened with Amina Husseini your second question mm-hmm. what was yes. your second
0: my second question was what is the grand Mufti of Jerusalem in this case? what is a grand mufti
1: well the uh, the grand Mufti is a um, um, an Islamic leader, a knowledgeable person who usually issues fatwas. These are um, Islamic um, Islamic texts on disputed um, questions and he would be the authority to do so. And there was a system of muftis, regional muftis or local muftis and there was a system of grand muftis, well established let's say two, since 200 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, since now the Arab countries became independent, there were three dozens of follower states after the Ottoman Empire went down. They, ha- they had to establish their own system of muftis and grand muftis. Mm-hmm. And uh, since Jerusalem was such an important point with the Al-Aqsa Mosque and so on, the, the grand mufti of Jerusalem was a very important uh, person. And he might have been, might have been considered by the British as the one who can be addressed not only in religious matters or questions, but also in national matters, speaking for the people living in the area. Mm-hmm. The people living in the area called themselves Syrians, southern Syrians. Only later, let's say, starting with the 1930s, they called themselves as Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was, he called himself as the Grand Mufti of Palestine, Al-Mufti Al-Akbar Min-Palestine. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, also, you know, in, from his uh, side, a quest to be more important and to be a representative of a national cause and uh, of a country. Mm-hmm. So he changed. He he changed his position also from a religious leader to a political leader, to a leader of a political movement. Mm-hmm. And so he went on and um, incited his people to to wage war against uh, the British, especially. Um, and so they started revolts in 1936 to 1938, and he was a leader of he was heavily involved in the preparation and um, ongoing of this revolt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, he became a partner, an interesting figure for the Nazis in Berlin as well, especially for Hitler. They watched what was going on in the Middle East. Mm
0: -hmm. How how did they first make contact with um, al-Husseini?
1: The the first contact made al-Husseini on his part. He had... Mm -hmm. uh, living in Europe, in Geneva, Shakib Arslan, for instance, and they established a little community in Berlin with a mosque inaugurated in 1927, and the so-called Islam Institute, and these people in the Islam Institute, mainly students who uh, were supposed to live there and to study there and to return to their countries, like Syria, they had close contacts to the Mufti. He had already established in Berlin different local bases, and uh, so he was quite faster than the Nazis were. Later the Nazis, they came to power in 1933, discovered the potential of the Islamists, and they thought they are like-minded, both movements. So, and uh, from the Islam Institute, 1927 in Berlin, it became to uh, the Central Islam Institute and the Mufti became a figurehead of this institute and was a gathering point for many people in Germany, especially Islamists and Muslims.
0: Mm -hmm. At what point does, um, and I think this happens, uh, Al-Husseini go on the German payroll? Um, In
1: 1937, Already in 1936, the Germans uh, contacted the Mufti, and he was involved in an anti-British revolt. And um, he suggested to be supported by weapon deliveries. The Saudis were involved too, and so the Germans sent to support al-Husseini's revolts against the British weapons to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And then from there it goes on and on. And a year later, 1937,
0: he
1: developed a plan. And the main points were, in exchange for support for the national cause, the national Palestinian uh, cause, he would propagate Nazism in the Middle East. And uh, in exchange for this, he would get a national home. And he insisted on destroying the national Jewish home in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. But what did it mean to destroy the national Jewish home? You can't destroy the infrastructure. You wouldn't destroy the houses. It always was a cover-up to destroy the people in reality. Mm -hmm. So this was established in 1937. And in the mid of that year, he called on all Muslims in the world to rid themselves of Jews. Mm-hmm. He was even faster than Hitler. Mm-hmm. Hitler did it later, a couple of years later. Mm-hmm. But he was—he knew Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, um, and he knew that what Hitler's program involved and the destruction of the Jews in, in three stages, in Europe, in the Middle East, and globally.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, when does al-Husseini first, I guess he only meets Hitler once, and that's in November of... 1941 and that's yes. a particularly significant meeting I mean I have read the documents uh, some of them are in your book that uh, describe this meeting um, between the Grand Mufti and Hitler they are chilling documents uh, to be sure we have minutes of them and um, and as I say there they are uh, and, and there's an agenda so maybe you could talk a little bit about this meeting in November of 1941.
1: Yes, um, this was um, the twenty-eighth of November, nineteen forty-one, as Hitler received Al Husseini. Three months before Al Husseini was still in the Middle East, he was um, he instigated the Farhut pogrom in Baghdad, as about two hundred Jews Jews died. So, and then he asked um, Hitler to be received by him in Berlin, and Hitler said yes. And from there on, a clock was ticking because there was still the possibility for legal Jewish travel to the Middle East. And uh, al-Husseini asked Hitler different times to stop any legal Jewish emigration to the Middle East. And Hitler knew what al-Husseini wanted, but he couldn't receive him without stopping this uh, Jewish traveling to the Middle East. So shortly before Hitler received al-Husseini, he, got, uh, he ordered to stop any Jewish legal emigration, And then that night, in one and a half hours, uh, both talked uh, about their plans, and Hitler told the Mufti that he is in an uncompromising war against the Jews. And uh, this would include the uh, destruction of uh, the Jewish national home in Palestine, and uh, as Hitler said, the destructive influence uh, of Jewish interests in the Middle East in general. So Hitler promised al-Husseini to liquidate not only the Jewish home, but the Jews in the Middle East, as soon as his army, armies would conquer the Middle East. On the one side, by Rommel, in North Africa, Egypt, to Syria and Palestine, and on the other side, via the Caucasus Mountains, to Iran and Iraq, and further on to India. This, called, this concept was called a pincer script. Mm-hmm. And that's what he promised, and he said to the Mufti, basically, you are the man to, to lead the Arab affairs and to set up a Jew-free Arab empire in the Middle East. And this was the very wish of the Mufti to be the leader of such an empire. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. The the next day, uh, well, I I don't know whether it's by chance or not, we'll talk about that in a second, Uh, I believe there's the order for the Vance Conference uh, to meet. Uh, First it was going to meet in December, and then it was pushed back. To I think January of the next of the of two thousand of of nineteen forty two, there's been some debate about this and about your book concerning the relationship between Al Husseini and the uh, and the uh, the uh, there's no Furberfeld but the, the order of Hitler to actually exterminate all the Jews of of Europe and and really the world. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? What relationship this had? What, how this factored into Hitler's thinking?
1: Yes. Again, we are um, on November 28, 1941. That afternoon in Berlin, the Mufti was received with military honor guards and music and all of this. They met Hitler and Al-Husseini, and they talked about uh, their plans, and they concluded what I call a pact of genocide. Hitler said uh, for the first time, and quite openly, that he wanted to, to destroy the Jews in Europe and in the Middle East and um, later that night as uh, Mufti left Hitler gave four orders and then there was a fifth decision and this fifth decision was only given orally but we can trace it back according to the documents and this was um, to prepare Hitler ordered to prepare for the Holocaust and either that night or the next morning the invitations went out to Thirteen senior Nazis for the one day conference to organize the logistics of mass murder and uh, to blur all of this, Hitler only uh, got out the news of his reception with al Husseini ten days later mm. and ten days later it became known to the world that Hitler met al husseini and uh, but as they published. Their meeting, they published it without a date. Mm -hmm. They simply said, uh, The Fuhrer Hitler received al Husseini without any date and saying some uh, sentences, you know, you can't uh, say much about it, what was the contents of their talk. So there was a clear awareness by Hitler that that very night or the next morning, uh, the process of the one-day conference was started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After he spoke to al-Husseini, after he um, unveiled his plans completely openly that he liked to destroy all the Jews.
0: Mm -hmm. I I want to be very clear about what you're arguing here and what you're not arguing. Um, You're not arguing that al-Husseini convinced Hitler to launch the final solution of the Jewish question.
1: No. Yes. This is impossible for one reason. Hitler had already the idea in 1925 in his book, and he published it. And there he said, gassing of Jews and the destruction of the, what he called the Judeo-Communist Empire. So Hitler propagated since 1920, basically, but most openly since 1925, his goals for the destruction of the uh, left empire, and for this was an ideological point and a racist point, the destruction of the Jews and uh, the Slavs, also. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the Mufti learned it. Mm-hmm. He had a network of people in Europe, and they told him what was going on, what were Hitler's goals, and so um, he was fast in learning what uh, the real goals were, and uh, they had they developed in parallel. Mm-hmm. And then they converged. They had common interests. The interest of the mufti was to keep the Jews out of the Middle East or to to drive them out. And uh, uh, Hitler Hitler's goal was to destroy the Jews. Mm-hmm. And the mufti wanted nothing more than uh, that Hitler stops any legal Jewish emigration or illegal Jewish immigration to the Middle East.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not mm-hmm. To get uh, a Jewish home there.
0: Mm-hmm. And essentially, then this gave the German Jews no place to go.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. He, he he closed all all possible doors of traveling to the Middle East, mm-hmm.
0: and so, he
1: insists on this.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so Al husseinis work, or or observation, or I'm not quite sure, cooperation with the Nazis is not done at that point. He spends um, much of the war in Germany. Is that right?
1: Yes, four and a half years, mm-hmm. and he had. To all the leading Nazis, and he established, or he managed to establish, a personal relationship to Himmler, to Eichmann, and to Goebbels. Goebbels, the propaganda minister, and to Goering, this was a, a, a Luftwaffe chief, and so on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so all he- of. He established personal relationships and he lobbied them to do this and that in his favor.
0: Mm-hmm. And and you asked the question, I, I know that you ask it in an article and you also talk about it here. What what, what did uh, what did Al-Husseini know about the uh, the Holocaust and the logistics of the Holocaust as it was unfolding in 1942, really the industrial killing begins? What did does he know and how does he know it?
1: Um, first of all, Hitler... Half a year before, in this uh, famous meeting at the end of November, Hitler had explained his goals to him quite openly to Mm the story. And um, and then, uh, shortly thereafter, in December, um, Eichmann met the Mufti in his map room and explained to him how to solve, in quotation marks, how to solve the Jewish question. And there we have reports about this, and the the reports say that the Mufti was very impressed how uh, Eichmann uh, planned all of this, and it concerned 11 million Jews at the beginning in Europe, including in uh, Europe, the Turkish parts of Europe, and so on. There were quite detailed lists, which country, how many Jews, and so on. So he got first-hand information uh, what was going on. And then the day after the Wednesday Conference, where the Holocaust um, logistics were managed, right the day after the Wednesday uh, Conference on 20th uh, January 1942, the Mufti was received by Fritz Grobber, and Grobber taught him what went on at the Wanzig conference. So he had uh, quite good knowledge w- what were the plans and how they carried them out. And the Mufti said once in his memoirs, I'm, I, I was privy uh, of this information, and uh, rightly so, because I was the leader of, um, of revolts in the Middle East against the other powers. So I have a right to know, and he acted uh, really as a watchdog. Uh, and he travelled to the towns, let's say Budapest, where the Nazis would round up Jews, and he, uh, in a way, he controlled it or he watched it. And um, and uh, yearly they would meet Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, the SS leader, and Al Husseini and um, with all these leading guys who were busy with uh, rounding up Jews and they talked about their experiences and um, and at one point in mid-1943 Himmler and al met in close to Ukraine in the headquarters of uh, Himmler as SS, SS headquarters and Hitler told Himmler told him of having killed so far 3 million Jews and he said and and Al Husseini in his memoirs that were published only in 1999 in Arabic he he said it i can i can quote it he said had um mm-hmm. abadna malayin we have killed so far three millions of them meaning Jews so he Quite clearly, he knew what was going on, he watched it, and uh, he had a lot of meetings with leading figures, with leading Nazi figures.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I think one of the contentions you make is he's very interested in the logistics of it because he plans to put them into practice after the Nazis win the war. Yes. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, say, please uh, say the question again. Yes, yeah, so one of the things that you say is that he was very interested in the logistics of the genocide because he was going to seek German help and put this German plan into effect in in Palestine and in the Middle East generally.
1: Right. Uh, we ha- we found interrogation protocols by the Soviets. They interrogated the main um, Nazi diplomat, Fritz Grober, one year after the war's end and he said quite frankly yes Hitler and Ribbentrop, the German foreign ministers planned to evacuate the Jews of Palestine and the Middle East to Mm -hmm. kill them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um, it was quite clear and uh, Al Husseini never thought that he would spend four and a half years in Germany in Berlin they always expected that first the Nazis would win he would return to Jerusalem and he already asked Himmler to get an assistant how to manage this process to to get rid of the Jews in the Middle East.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for him, it was a learning curve
1: or a learning process how the Nazis did it, and uh, he plans the same in the Middle East. It's quite clear.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's move forward just a little bit. Uh, The Nazis lose the war, but al-Husseini's... efforts, let's put it that way, do not cease. And he lists more Germans. No.
1: Already in 1944 they started the war after the war. Hitler agreed to Al-Husseini's suggestions to send uh, troops, paratroopers, Palestinian paratroopers to Palestine to fight the Jews there. They already, one year before the war's end, they started the next war. And al Husseini was a recognized leader. He returned uh, a year later, in 1946, to the Middle East, and uh, there he organized uh, resistance against Jewish, the Jewish presence in the Middle East, and um, and he was basically the organizer of the so-called Nakba, mm-hmm. the debacle, the Palestinian debacle. He prepared everything. He got uh, together the weapons, the soldiers, and so on but he was not successful as we know. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book that that I found very interesting is that he enlists a lot of former Nazis.
1: Yes, Um, now uh, uh, the page was turned in the Middle East and uh, uh, Europeans persecuted the Nazis and they fled to the Middle East. It was quite an interesting option. What, uh, what's, what's going to be after the war. And so they, uh, Al-Husseini organized asylums for uh, former Nazis, ex-Nazis, uh, mainly in Egypt, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and Algeria. So um, there are estimates, conservative estimates, about 4,000 Nazis who settled down in Middle Eastern countries. And uh, there are other estimates about seven to eight thousand. For instance, uh, Simon Wiesenthal uh, thought that about eight thousand ex-Nazis settled down in the Middle East. Sometimes they or often they changed names and got um, Islamic names, and it was not easy to trace them. So. And many of them worked in propaganda, Jew hatred, anti-liberal ideas, and uh, the outcome is quite known. It never ceased
0: Mm -hmm. in the Middle
1: East. And Middle East is one of the regions, was one of the world regions where the supporters of the Nazis often stayed in power or gained power after World War II. Whereas in Europe and America, uh, the ideology of Nazism was delegitimized. This process didn't happen in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. We have a lot, and as we found out, we have a lot of people in the Middle East who remained in power or gained power in the revolts after World War II. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let me let me look up here uh, uh, Usually, those people were born between 1917 and 1942, and they were heavily swayed by Rome and Berlin. And I just named some people who displayed their the influence on them, either in their texts or in their memoirs. Let me, call, let me name a few names. Al-Habib Al-Burgiba. Ahmed Ben Bella in, in North Africa, Muhammad al-Qadhafi, Yasser Arafat, Mahmoud Abbas, Abdel Nasser, Anwar Sadat, and the founders of the Ba'ath Party in Syria and Iraq, Michel Aflaq, Salah ad-Din Bitar, Hafiz al-Assad, Saddam Hussein, and then the clerics and royals in the Middle East. For instance, in Iran, like the Ayatollahs al-Kashani and al-Khomeini, they were influenced by Berlin and Rome, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. And they either they gained power or they stayed in power. And so this region had a special problem with Nazism and uh,
0: Islamism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on to this next Phase. I want to talk a little bit about 1947 and 1948. In the book, you point out that al-Husseini and the the Palestinians, or I don't know, maybe the Islamists or Arabs, uh, missed a great opportunity in 1947-48 because there was a UN-sponsored partition plan that they uh, they refused.
1: Yes, they refused um, many uh, proposals, likewise. And um, 13 Arab countries refused this partition plan and nowadays, by the way, they recognized the mischained chance mm-hmm. they had, 1947, 1948, to gain a little foothold um, and uh, Palestinian part of that country. So, uh, But al-Husseini was so convinced all the years that uh, the Nazi option would be the right one of the Middle East, he had um, really a habit of refusing any ideas and even good ideas that would have worked for the Palestinian side Mm in 1937, for instance, to stop the Jewish immigration within the next 10 years and to have a basically Palestinian uh, country there. And um, so he was uh, really uh, unrealistic and this unrealistic tendency, uh lingered on all the years in the Middle East
0: mm-hmm. well this is an, yeah, I was going to say this is another one of the themes that comes up in the book and I, I don't quite know how to describe it, but it, it's as if uh, al Husseini c- can't think past this sort of all or nothing alternative yes,
1: exactly and, and, exactly and, and this was a line and for instance, we display a document in the book and um, he, he organized in 1953 uh, an Islamic Congress. Uh, for the Palestinian cause, as he said. And uh, there are six points. I just read uh, the first four of them. All Muslims must work for the liberation of Palestine. The liberation of Palestine was meant uh, destroying Israel and getting the Jews out of the Middle East. Number two, Israeli occupation of Palestine is invalid, and Israel's uh, displacement of the Palestinian Arabs um, of their rights is an aggression against every Muslim. Uh, consideration point three of peace with Israel or dealing with Israel is treason. And number four, the proposed internationalization of Jerusalem is a conspiracy against the Muslim world. Even the proposed internationalization in which He would get a foothold. He refused even this. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: He said, consideration of peace with Israel or dealing with Israel is treason. And we know that um, he was, we know it by uh, family members even, he was behind murdering of people who had a tendency to accommodate with Israel Mm -hmm. in a kind of moderation.
0: So uh, it's about at this time that we see a sea change in uh, Arab politics and Islamism becomes, uh, it sort of goes out of favor and we see uh, Arab nationalism come into favor. How how does uh, al-Husseini adapt to um, the Arab nationalists in the 1950s?
1: Um, He had not such a good life in the 1950s because all these nationalists came to power like Abdel Nasser in, in Egypt and in Syria and Iraq. Uh, so he concentrated on developing further the cause of Islamism on with the World Muslim Congress every year almost every year in Pakistan and other countries he would organize meetings of the world Muslim Congress number one, and number two, he focused on uh, Western Europe. Um, the Muslim brothers were persecuted by these nationalists in the Middle East who gained power, so he um, Organized asylum asylum for them in Western Europe and what I call the hideouts of the Muslim Brotherhoods and other Islamists, they settled down in Geneva and um, his man in Geneva was uh, Saito Ramadan, uh, as it was the case uh, before this with um, with uh, Shakib Arslan and they promoted and organized uh, meetings. Uh, mosque building and all of this in the 1950s and in the 1960s. So, and from there, as we know, is uh, goes the path to 9-11. Mm-hmm. The Hamburg cell um, and in other towns, there they hatched all these plans uh, for 9-11 and there they uh, they worked for uh, the destruction of the enemy behind the enemy, the... the to disturb the enemy behind the enemy is an old concept also connected to Oppenheim what he did was uh, to disturb the great powers w- in within their colonies and now the concept was to, to fight the enemy behind the enemy and uh, as you know they regarded Israel as a little sat- Satan And America is a big Satan. Mm -hmm. So, and they worked for this, and um, Al Husseini, as long as he lived until 1974, um, acquired, did fundraising for them and supported them in any way
0: possible. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things you say in the book or claims you make is that um, Al Husseini, while he was not uh, successful in uh, his policy in the Middle East, he did succeed in carrying over, so to say, the Islamists. Over this nationalist period, so that they yes. could reemerge in the seventies.
1: Yes, and you know, it was quite clear uh, there was a kind there was a process of decolonization, and in, in the process of decolonization, nation building and nation is very important. But nation and nation building is only one element of the identity. The most important element, even for the nationalists, was their Muslim. Mm-hmm. identity. And so we see uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, many so-called nationalists became all of a sudden Islamists. They returned to their basic identity. For instance, Saddam Hussein had no problem to display himself as an, all of a sudden as an Islamist, supporting uh, Islamist cases in Palestine, for instance. Or even Abdel Nasser, who was a strong nationalist, uh, became in the late 1960s a kind of supporter of Islamists, as his successor did, Anwar Sadat. He freed all the Islamists in prison, and prisons in Egyptian prisons, and uh, so it became again a powerful tendency within. Egypt first and other countries, surrounding countries, and then throughout the 1980s mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and into the global era.
0: Yeah. So, uh, and then a second claim, that, that is the first claim being they carried over or he helped carry over Islamism through this nationalist period, is that he has a direct effect on what we might call the Arafat era.
1: Yes, very much so. Arafat, uh, he... he he worked together with Arafat uh, in the ni- since the 1950s, basically. But Arafat was a little known figure in the 1950s. He participate participated in the fight against Israel, and uh, then in 1957 he set up his uh, basic organization in Kuwait, Fatah. And afterwards, he met occasionally the Grand Mufti and got advice from him. And in 1968, at the end of 1968, they met after uh, the Lost War of 1967. And Al-Husseini advised Arafat to set up uh, an organization and to to, to take over the PLO. The PLO was established in 1965. And now we are four years later Mm -hmm. after um, uh, Lost War and so um, al-Husseini developed the concept to reconquer parts of Palestine by Fatah units and um, and in an armed struggle and he advised Arafat to take over the PLO and to to develop a plan how to do it, what are the main points and uh, Arafat did mm-hmm. and he succeeded in taking over the PLO in the next year, 1969 so uh, basically, we can consider Arafat as al Hussein's heir. Mm-hmm. al Hussein's heir for the Middle East or in the center of the Middle East, as Saeed Ramadan was his heir in Western Europe.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it does any damage to the historical record to say that Arafat also inherited this all-or-nothing mentality.
1: Yes, unfortunately, unfortunately, against other advices, even from his friends. Mm -hmm. They said, why don't you you, uh, do this compromise and get a little platform, and from there you develop develop further. But um, the concept of uh, moderation or rethinking, you know, and uh, the possibility for the Palestinians to freely choose their leaders was simply not given. Basically, more than 60 years, the Palestinians were under the leadership of either Al-Husseini or Arafat. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there was no good possibility for them to have a competition, mm-hmm. to look for uh, uh, smart other leaders who would do this or would gain uh, help by others in the international community. Mm-hmm. But was not uh, possible.
0: Yeah. Well, many of uh, Arafat's critics... Used to say, I don't know if they say it anymore, that Arafat never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Yes, yes I know. That. Yeah, and also he yeah. couldn't take yes for an answer. Yes, said, Very true. So yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, that's- so I want to I want to come close our interview um, by asking you a question. We already discussed it a little bit on email, and that is uh, just a couple of days ago. I was listening to the BBC, and they were interviewing quite a moderate. Uh, uh, i don 't know what to call him he's a, a Muslim scholar and, and someone who is Muslim and from the Middle East and a caller uh, asked the question um, about al Husseini and the Nazis and this fellow um, who I'm sure is very well meaning and actually does nice things, uh, categorically denied that there was any relationship between al Husseini and the Nazis. Why, why, yeah, do people, you know, why, why do people do this i mean well it's it's really
1: difficult, you know we started now a process. Of re-evaluating by acquiring new records, only now, only after the U- German unification, only after American laws, uh, the Nazi wartime disclosure act, for instance, only now we are accessing, we are able to access the records, mm-hmm. and only now there, there begins uh, a process of uh, puzzling all these documents uh, from all sides involved together. Mm-hmm. And there is only comes new knowledge, new insights, and uh, we look forward for new discussions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's quite late, but it's ongoing, and uh, we expect much more to come.
0: Yeah, well, that's, it's very interesting. So, um, Wolfgang, let me ask you our traditional final question on new books uh, in history, in this case. Uh, what are you working on now?
1: Um, I'm working now on a biography about Amin Mm al-Husseini that focuses on his last quarter century after World War II until 1974. And uh, we got uh, new documents from all sides, as I said, although it's still difficult. Some archives are still closed. Some collections are unaccessible for uh, various reasons. And so I'm looking forward uh, to my first draft of
0: this (laughs) biography. Well, I wish you luck on that book. Um, And let me say uh, thank you very much for being on the show today. We've been talking with... uh, Wolfgang Schwan, it's about his book Nazis, Islamists, and the Making of the Modern Middle East. I highly recommend people go buy it. It's a really eye-opening book. Thank you, Wolfgang. You're welcome. Um, And let me tell everybody who listens to this podcast, thank you for listening. We really appreciate your support, and I hope everybody has a good week.